0: Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey guys, it's October which some of you may know it's National Pork Month or Porktober. But did you know that October is also reserved for another perhaps lesser known protein? That's right, October is also Goattober. What started out as a small campaign back in 2011 to prolong the lives of billy goats and to put delicious ethical meat on the menu has grown into an international campaign bringing together dairies, farmers, NGOs, and individuals who are passionate about ending food waste in the goat dairy system. I hope you all enjoy the replays from the ladies in the goat gang, and we'll be back with brand new episodes starting in November. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today you'll hear from Lauren Stein, who is an agricultural law professor, food journalist, and farmer from Northwest Arkansas, raising grass-finished, pasture-raised cattle, sheep, and my favorite, goats. But before we get to today's episode, let's go over the review of the week. The review of the week is titled Sense of Community, and it is from page 867 over on Apple Podcast. This five-star review says, it's so awesome to hear the stories of other hardworking women farmers. This community that you have created is really inspiring. Keep it up, Caitlin. I look forward to each episode. Well, thank you so much, Paige, for your awesome review. And if you have been enjoying the Rural Woman podcast, I'd encourage you to pop on over to iTunes and leave a review. You could hear your kind words on an upcoming episode of this very podcast. Speaking of community, make sure if you haven't joined the Rural Woman podcast community over on Facebook yet that you do. Our community is an inclusive group for women in agriculture. We are here to support and be in community with one another. We may not farm, ranch, or homestead the same, and that is perfectly okay. We are here to learn from each other and encourage one another, and everyone is welcome. So make sure you head on over to Facebook and search out the Rural Women Podcast community and join from there, or simply look up Wild Rose Farmer on Facebook, and we can add you from there. On last week's episode, I told you all about a new shirt design over on Shop Wild Rose Farmer, and I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has already grabbed their agriculture-supporting agriculture shirts. I love, love, love when you guys get your packages and show me that you got them over on Instagram, so make sure when you get your new shirt, you model it for me and tag me at Wild Rose Farmer so I can see your shirt and everyone else can see your brand new spiffy shirts. I've also added some great items like hats, toques, mugs, and stickers, so make sure if you haven't been over to Shop Wild Rose Farmer lately that you head on over, and feel good knowing that proceeds from Shop Wild Rose Farmer directly support the production of the Rural Woman podcast. And without further ado, let's get to Lauren's episode. Have you been loving the Rural Woman podcast? Are you wondering how you can support the show? Well, friend, I'm happy to announce that I've recently joined Patreon. Patreon. What is Patreon? Well, it's a membership-based platform that provides a simple way for you to contribute to the Rural Woman Podcast every month and get exclusive rewards in return. Memberships start as low as $2 a month. Seriously, that's less than your grande, skinny, extra hot caramel macchiato with whip. Wondering what the rewards are? Well, they include promo codes for Shop Wild Rose Farmer, draws for the Rural Woman Podcast merchandise, shoutouts on the show, and more. Your financial support of the Rural Woman podcast will help make it possible for the stories of women in agriculture to continue to be shared. So head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to find out more information about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Good morning, Lauren. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm so excited to talk to you on this microphone. We've been friends on Instagram now for a few months, and (laughs) I've been learning so much from you about goats and all of the things. But before I keep rambling on about how much I love all of your goats, tell the listeners a little (laughs) bit about who you are and where you're from.
1: Yeah, sure. So I currently live in Northwest Arkansas. I was born and raised in California and actually lived in California for the first 31 years of my life. And I was a lawyer in private practice. I don't come from a farm family. I don't have a farming background, so to speak. And, you know, I could dig into this a lot about how I ended up being a farmer in Arkansas from a lawyer in California. And people always kind of give me sideways looks like, why are you here? How did you get here? This doesn't make sense. But I enjoyed private practice. But I just felt like that's not what I wanted to do for the next, you know, 30 years of my career. I kind of realized, which is odd, that I didn't like sitting in an office all day. You know, I'd been a student, I'd gone to undergrad and then straight through law school. So that's seven years higher education. And I made it through that. But then I got into practice and I thought, I just don't like sitting at this desk for 12 hours a day. And the firm I was last at needed to let people go. And by the time, like, I kind of had become pretty disenchanted with where I was in life. And so, they let me go. And in hindsight, getting fired was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because it freed me up to explore things that I was really passionate about. And I hate to admit this, it's kind of embarrassing, but in CrossFit at the time, and I kind of got really into the whole paleo thing and thinking about how we should be eating, what's the right type of food to eat. And that took me in, into the rabbit hole of agriculture. And so, you know, people who do CrossFit try not to be one of those annoying people who always talk about it. And I kind of downplay it. But I really credit CrossFit and paleo to opening my eyes to this whole concept of where does your food come from? Do you understand where it comes from, how it was grown, its impact on the environment, the quality of life for the animals? And so I found a master's program. It's actually an LLM degree, which is a master's for attorneys, a master's of law at the University of Arkansas. And it's expressly about food and agriculture law and policy. And I thought this is my chance to take my legal education and apply it to something that I'm passionate about. So. I packed up, drove to Arkansas sight unseen for this master's, and I fell in love with the area. I fell in love with Arkansas, with the people, and I went on a farm tour in my first, I think, few weeks here. And the last stop on the farm tour was at a grass-fed, grass-finished, pastured meat operation. And I got to talking with the owners, and I said, you know, I don't know anything about farming. I've never farmed in my life can I just come out and intern or shadow with you and just spend time with you as a farmer to learn about what your life is like? Because for me, if I was going to be making policy or working on legal issues with agriculture, I wanted the farmer perspective. And the long story short, four years later, we joke is that I'm still on the farm tour. Since then, I've obviously decided to stay in Arkansas and not go back to California. I have bought my own farm. I'm a partner in the business with them now. And just really trying to build up more and more of a farm business, and my hope one day is to eventually farm full time. That
0: is an incredible story, Lauren. Like that is a complete <laughs> one hundred and eighty from yeah. like, California to Arkansas. First of all, that's probably a bit of a culture shock, and second, huge, huge, right, yeah, being at a desk for twelve hours a day. I can completely relate. Of being working for government post-secondary before becoming a farmer, like now even just sitting here at this podcast desk for more than like a few hours at a time drives me nuts. I hate to admit it. but (laughs) Just being on the farm, right? Being on the farm and being outside is a privilege and completely where I need to be. And I'm glad to hear that you feel the same for that. So you say that you are in partnership now with the farm that you went on that tour with. Can you tell us about your operation and their operation a little bit about what you guys are raising on your land?
1: Yeah, it's a really great story. And I think there's so many people who want to get into farming who don't come from farm families. And we've kind of created it through this partnership that I think is really special is a de facto farm family. So the two people who run our partnership, Ozark Pasture Beef is what it's called, or Ann Wells and Ron Morrow, and their colleagues, they met a long time ago working through ATRA, and they started this grass-finished beef operation through a SARE grant, doing research about, you know, can we finish animals on grass? How long does it take? What's the quality of the meat, et cetera. And so this partnership has been around for over a decade, and their children are interested in being full-time farmers. They don't live here in Arkansas. They live elsewhere. But Ann and Ron want to see this business continue, you know, well into the future. They've built this client list. Their sales are great. We serve a lot of restaurants. You know, we're known in the community. And so myself and then another beginning first generation farmer, James Maganot, he's the fourth partner. We're kind of all working together to figure out how to keep this going, how to bring design to the business. He's got a full-time job, off-farm job too. And so, you know, he and I are kind of plotting how can we eventually become full-time farmers with Ozark pasture beef when it's time to kind of pass the business along. And we have a total of about, I'd say, roughly 350 to 400 acres total. We each own individual farms within that. And then James has some leases. But what we raise is grass-fed beef, lamb, and my goat meat is kind of our new project. And then James also has a pretty big vegetable operation. And he has some laying hens and some pasture-raised boilers. And so we all have our individual farming operations, but we're a partnership in the sense that we sell through the same brand name. We're very supportive of one another. Obviously, we work together on things. You know, we put animals at each farms and stuff like that. And that I think that support that I found was critical to me being able to start farming as quickly as I did, because I don't know that I would have had the guts to just buy a farm and buy animals if I didn't have the mentorship. From Anne and Ron. Anne's a large animal veterinarian. Ron was this Arkansas State Grazing land specialist and also taught at universities and has a PhD in animal genetics. So I kind of feel like there's really no question I can't find an answer to, which has really emboldened me, for better or worse, sometimes to to try different things.
0: That's incredible. You guys are like the grass fed dream team. You have (laughs) I know. You have so much support (laughs) backing you. And I think For people who dream of becoming farmers or having this land, it's so overwhelming because unless you're Googling everything or you have somebody you know, like how does one person find out about how to raise these animals and how to graze them on their property and all that stuff. So that is very cool that you were able to find these people as and be a team and have resources to figure out and navigate how to get into this crazy world of agriculture. So very cool.
1: Yeah, and I tell people who want to get because the people will send me a message or tell me like, Oh, I'd love to have a farm someday. And what I tell them is go work on someone else's farm. And when I first started coming out to Ann and Ron's place, it started out just every once in a while. And then it got to the point where I would go out there and follow them as much as I could and just you know, they entertained my one million annoying dumb questions, lots repeat questions. They taught me everything that they know. And you have to be a sponge and soak all that up. And I think a mistake a lot of people make is they've never actually spent time doing the day to day labor of farming, or they haven't been experienced in dealing crises, and they buy land, they buy animals, and then all of a sudden they feel really overwhelmed because they don't have a good sense of what they're getting themselves into. And so I always tell people, just go be an intern. You know, go on the weekends or go whenever you can and shadow a farmer and get to know them and get an understanding of what you're getting into because it's not as you know it's not always Instagram pretty and bucolic and wonderful
0: absolutely that is some great advice so Lauren you said that the goat operation is quite new tell us more about how you got into that and why you chose goats
1: Yeah, the goat choice was really just because Ann has a lot of woods on her property. And this was about the time that I decided I was not going to move home to California. And I said, well, I should obviously buy some livestock and stay, and start really trying to get into farming. And so I started out with two goats in 2016, I think it was. And I just bred them that year. And they both kid in the spring. And now three years later, I've got 40 goats. And the way that they multiply so quickly, you know, and I've bought a few extra here and there but they multiply really fast. And so we initially use them to just try and tackle some of the brows that Ann has on her place. She's got a lot of blackberries. She's got, i say about 30 acres of woods or so, and we've just grown it from there. And she's been really instrumental. You know, As you know, goats are hard to raise. They're a big challenge. And so having a veterinarian kind of helped me along the way to build this herd and figure out what genetics we want. And we're still playing with it. You know, I think, I think I've got a really good health genetics line going on where they're very parasite resistant and they seem to be really hardy. But now what I'm trying to focus on more is carcass quality and larger carcasses, meteor goats, things like that. So I'm actually putting my Billy out on Tuesday, I think, and he's part Kiko, part boar. And so I'm adding a little bit of those boar genetics to try and see if I can get some bigger carcasses. It's predominantly a Kiko-based herd. Very cool. So
0: you're talking about carcasses. So (laughs) I know in my area in which I live in Southern Alberta, when I tell people that I raise goat for meat, they have a horrified look on their face because when they think of goats, and I'm talking about like city people, not like my farm neighbors, but city people have this envisionment of little goats in pajamas jumping around on YouTube. That's not really the case here. Goat meat is the largest consumption of red meat in the world, if I'm correct. Yep. More about what it's like for you to raise goat meat and what the stigma might be around that in your area.
1: Yeah, and you know I think that people starting to view goats more as companion animals in lieu of livestock. I think that's kind of creating some issues, and that might be a good segue after this into the stolen goat issue because I think that's came into play there. But you know most people assume I have goats for dairy, and so I tell them no, they're not dairy goats; they're meat goats, and I can always see their brains processing after I tell them that, like, Oh, you eat them? Like, yes. And some people, I think anytime I tell them I have livestock, one of the first questions I get is, Oh, isn't that hard to raise animals and then butcher them with goats? I think what people refer to most here is goat yoga. Like, Oh, that's so great. Do you host goat yoga? Like, no, I absolutely don't host goat yoga. And I kind of don't understand the appeal of goat yoga because you're rolling around, they're crawling all over you. And when I'm out trying to do stuff on the farm, Some of the friendlier goats will come over and jump on me, and it's kind of, you know, obnoxious to some degree. It's cute at a point, but then when you're actually trying to get something done, it can be a little bit disruptive. And, you know, I just try and educate people about goat meat. I try and tell them how lean it is, that it's not very gamey, it's very palatable, it's widely eaten, as you mentioned, all over the world, and there's lots of really interesting dishes. You know, there's whole cookbooks dedicated to goat. And right now in October, we've got Goat-tober going on. There's lots of chefs who celebrate Goat-tober by highlighting all these different recipes, amazing things that you can cook with goat meat. So I don't get a lot of, you know, really abhorrent reactions saying, oh my gosh, how can you eat goats? But people I think around here just haven't really thought about eating goat meat. So for them, it's kind of a new realization, you know, goat meat is a thing. It's available here in my community.
0: Right. And are you a big consumer of goat meat yourself?
1: I'd like to be, but what's happening with my goat herd that's very aggravating, and I don't know if they're plotting against me, but there's a disproportionate number of dolings to bucklings. They overwhelmingly keep having dolings, and I keep telling them this is not a breeding stock operation, ladies. Like, you gotta have some bucklings once in a while, but I'd say it's like 75% of my kidding is dolings, and so I'm hoping that they kind of even that out. So I haven't had many to butcher, which has been kind of frustrating, but at the same time, my breeding herd. Has grown really well over the last three years because I've had so many dolings to add to it. So, we butchered four this year. Two went as whole restaurant, and then two we did as individual cuts. And I always try anytime we butcher an animal, I like to try at least a steak or some ground meat just to make sure you know it tastes right, to understand what it tastes like, and that way you know I can talk to consumers about what their experience might be because with grass finished meat. It can taste a little different depending on the time of year, what they're grazing at that time. And so we try and pay attention to that as much as we can.
0: Very interesting. I personally have never tried goat meat, and I get asked a lot if I eat my own goats. And for me, because I am so new to this and I feel like I am a big baby when it comes to time for them to go to market or butchering (laughs) them, I'm like, I could possibly never eat my, like, I could just not eat my own goat, except for this year, I would eat one of them named Richard because he was a terror, (laughs) but (laughs) that's a story. I know the
1: feeling. Right? That's a story for another time. But like you said- I think most people don't realize, like, goats are kind of obnoxious sometimes. Like, they're really- you know, they're a lot to handle. People think goats are these cute little animals like their pet dogs. I'm like, no, goats will make you say curse words. You didn't even know that you knew. Goats are a handful.
0: Absolutely. And I know I speak for you when I say this because we've had this conversation. We can sit here and tell you what a big pain in the butt they are and how terrible they are. But we still love them with all of our hearts because yes. I know you and I have had this conversation this year oh, yeah. even, right? Right. Hey, all we'll get right back to our episode after a word from our sponsor. Nestled in the tree-filled mountains by Kootenay Lake in Nelson, British Columbia, KL Skin Naturals was founded in 2013 by owner Leah. K.L. Skin Naturals is known for their award-winning natural deodorant that I have personally been using since early 2017, and I can tell you from personal experience, it passes the farming test. You know what I'm talking about. I feel good knowing that the deodorant that I'm using is free from harsh chemicals and scents. All of their products are produced by hand from the very first measure to the very last label. Each recipe was worked, researched, perfected, and tested on family and friends who all agree that there's something unique to be offered in the effective products that Leah is making. Listeners of the Rural Woman podcast can save 10% off their order with promo code WILDROSE10. So head on over to klskindeodorant.com to choose from their wide selection of clean-scented natural deodorants, plus other natural skincare products such as fresh aloe skin cream, foot butters, and more. And now back to our episode. So you mentioned it before, the absolutely awful thing that happened to you on your farm earlier this year. You had a goat stolen from your farm. So let's talk a little bit about that situation and what happened.
1: Yeah, and it all started with a hashtag, you know. And I'm technically a millennial, but I'm an older millennial and I'm not the most, you know, social media savvy with hashtags and things. And I was posting a picture of some goats. And sometimes Instagram will suggest hashtags for you to use based on ones that you already are using. And one of the ones they suggested was Goats of Anarchy. And I was like, oh, that's funny because, you know, there's the show Sons of Anarchy. And as I mentioned, goats are so crazy. Like, they are anarchists in the sense that they hate fences, they hate order, they want to do whatever they want to do. And then I get this message from an account called Goats of Anarchy saying, how dare you use our hashtag? And I thought that was kind of funny. You know, how can you own a hashtag? That's sort of counterintuitive, to the whole concept of a hashtag. And I go over to their account, and it turns out they're a vegan goat sanctuary. And I thought, oh, no, this is... (laughs) This is probably a hashtag that I shouldn't have used. And they got really upset. You know, how can you murder these animals and use our hashtag? That's really inflammatory. And I apologized. And I said, I didn't even know you existed. And I went and I deleted the hashtag saying, you know, my bad, whatever. Just let's go our separate ways. But then they looked at a post I had posted a few days or weeks ago about one nanny goat in particular that I decided to butcher, I just struggled to help her succeed. And I think it was partly just her genetics were not great. She was a horrible mother. She'd often give birth and just walk away. She had trouble keeping conditions. She didn't have a good udder. She always would get her head stuck in fences. She was just a very difficult goat. And we kind of have a mentality that if there's an animal in your herd or flock that you constantly have to give individual attention to, that's probably not genetics that you want to keep breeding into your herd because you're just going to create a lot of animals who need individual attention. And ideally you want a herd or flock that's fairly self-sufficient. You know, of course you have to make sure they're healthy and take care of them and stuff like that, but you can be as hardy and independent as possible. And so after three years of trying to get this nanny goat on the right track, trying to get her in condition, trying to bring out her maternal instinct, I just kind of decided, you know, I don't want to keep breeding your genetics into my herd. I don't want bottle kids. And I explained all this in a post, all of this, like how I had tried really hard to make her succeed. But what this goat sanctuary did is they took that post and they shared it to their 600,000 followers. And they said things, this is how a farmer thinks this goat is too difficult for her. So she's just going to murder it and eat it. You know, how horrible. And they sent me all these direct messages saying, give us your goat, give us your goat. We'll pay for it. We'll come get it. Give it to us, and I said, No, like this is I'm going to give you this animal so you can put her in an air conditioned barn in a dry lot and feed her a bucket ration just so you feel better about it. You know, she's gonna feed my community, she's gonna provide a service to all of us. She's lived a really good life, and it just snowballed from there death threats and nasty comments, and all these people saying, I hope you die, and like you're a murderer, and you're the worst farmer we've ever heard of in our entire lives. And then about two days later she went missing. And I had had her right up in my house. And my house looks out over my entire farm and I can pretty much see everything that's going on. And she was not one to really stray from the herd or go off on her own. And I searched for two days to try and find this goat. And I never did. And the only thing I can think of, and again, I can't say with 100% certainty, is that someone came here and took her. I never found evidence of her. I never found a hole in the fence. The entire rest of the herd was here. And it's just too coincidental in my mind that that one goat and i Published a picture of her. They knew exactly which one it was. And goats are very distinct looking that she just disappeared and vanished.
0: That is such, oh, that gives me chills because it's such an invasion of privacy, of your private property. Plus, I just think of the mindset of somebody so headstrong to come on to somebody's property and steal their property based on their thoughts of how this goat should live its life.
1: Yeah, one it yes, it absolutely freaked me out. I didn't leave my for like seven days after that, and I sure did not sleep well. And it bothered me because I went and looked at their, I combed through their account trying to get a sense of who these people are. It seems like they're massively overstocked. In the pictures, it seems like these goats are not browsing. You know, browse is what they want to eat the blackberry bushes and multi floor rows and little trees and shrubs. None of that in their habitat. A lot of them have had amputations. For some reason and they're in wheelchairs or stuff like that. And I just the quality of life that they're offering those goats versus the quality of life that I'm offering them, I think is incredibly different. And I think most consumers don't understand that. That it's cute to see a goat, you know, in a goat sanctuary in its little barn on its dirt floor, but that's not where that goat wants to live.
0: Right. I think it's important to note what you said, that goats are browsers. They're actually not grazers. They're browsers. They want to pick and choose what they eat. Like for instance, Mm -hmm. when I have the goats and my calves out on a certain spot, the calves are eating something completely different than the goats are because they are picky. They want to pick and choose and they don't just eat anything and everything like... Some people do, right? So right, giving them a bucket of whatever on a dirt floor, like you said, that's not exactly their ideal lifestyle. And if I think if they were born and raised in that environment, it would be completely different than, let's say, your goat who had the opportunity to go browse its entire life and then to be put into a dirt stall is a complete shock for it.
1: Right, yeah, I'm on the side of a mountain. You know, goats love climbing. They love going up, up, up. They like being up high. I've got woods and there's giant rocks they play on. I've got pond. There's 40 acres that this goat roams every single day. And they wanted to take her two kids too. They said, "Let me at least take this doe and her two bucklings, so they can stay together as a family." And the anthropomorphizing me is really bad. Like we're trying to impose the societal norms that we have on these livestock animals, you know, it's wild to me that they wanted to keep these two bucklings with its mother. But then if I bring them out to the farm and I show some realities of how these animals interact with one another, it kind of blows their mind. Like they don't understand that that buckling, if not castrated would breed its own mother and like not have any sense of, you know, what our societal norms are about. You don't breed your mother. And I think the profound lack of understanding about livestock animal behavior and about their natural behaviors that they express is why we see things like baby goats in pajamas in goat sanctuaries.
0: Absolutely. I agree. So has there been any follow up since this has happened to you, whether it's through authorities or any other animal activists online?
1: I filed a police report, but you know, Without any hard evidence or any kind of cheesy term evidence trail to go off of, there's not a lot that they could really do. I just more so wanted them to drive by a little bit more frequently in case somebody else did try and come to the property. I have not heard anything about that goat. And I had some messages that I exchanged with Goats of Anarchy, with the lady who owns it, saying someone came and stole this goat. Like, do you have any idea what kind of invasion of privacy that was? And she blocked me. And then she accused me. She said, "You just killed that goat so you could blame it on us that somebody stole her." And that really upset me. That she thought I was just trying to manipulate the situation. That I would go kill my own goat just to win some social media argument. And that to me was the most out of touch thing she said. She obviously does not understand livestock farmers and our relationship to our animals.
0: Oh, that's terrible. That just ugh, yeah. that, that doesn't make me feel yeah. good at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no, I was pretty mad. So my follow-up question to all of this, has this event made you question sharing your story in agriculture?
1: Absolutely not. You know, if anything, it's made me want to be more vocal about it. And the thing I kind of laugh at in hindsight, if there is a silver lining, is that I wrote a post about the experience and it kind of went viral a little bit. And a lot of people, I got a thousand new followers out of it. Um, so if anything, I thought, wow, instead of her shaming me. If anything, she's kind of given me a broader audience to start talking about what it is to be a livestock farmer. How do we treat these animals? What is the day-to-day life? And to try and educate people about livestock production and better meat and things like that. And so, you know, if someone wanted to find me, of course they could, but I feel more emboldened, if anything, like obviously there's a huge disconnect with consumers and meat production. And I think with my legal background and being a professor and a journalist, like maybe I can kind of bridge that gap and communicate because I was a consumer, you know, five years ago, I was just like many of them. And so I can still kind of understand where they're from. Whereas I think some people in legacy farming families, you know, farming is so germane to their existence. It's kind of part of their DNA and they can't always relate to consumers, which is not a bad thing. You know, you just, you're born into a family. That's your reality. So, I, if anything, I'm trying to now say, like, wow, there's a disconnect. How can I maybe reach out and show some people who are confused or who want information, who want to hear different perspectives? How can I provide that for them?
0: And I think you do such a good job of relating consumers to- because, like you said, the people that were born and raised this way. I even think of my husband, for instance. There are things that I talk to him about and issues that I find in our industry that he just can't relate to because. It's just like, well, this is how it is. Like, it's no difference. This is how livestock is raised. This is how people are doing it. Like, I don't see the problem. It's like, well, the problem is there's, like you said, there's such a disconnect between a consumer and the farmer. They don't know what's going on on our farms. They don't know how livestock is raised. They don't know what the purpose of livestock is. Like, there is a distinct difference between livestock and a pet. There are definitely people that have pet goats or even a pet cow, and then there are livestock, and this is what their purpose is. As a farmer, it's your choice of what you're raising on your farm or ranch, but at the end of the day, I think it's also our responsibility in agriculture to share our story. So I thank you for continuing to share your story online, even though this is a complete invasion of your privacy, and I just can't even imagine what that must have felt like for you. So. Thank you for continuing to share your story and bridging the gap between consumer and farmer.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. And I have the same situation. My husband's a fifth-generation cattle rancher. And my favorite thing to do is go argue with his dad up in Kansas, you know, (laughs) because I I love grass-finished meat and rotational grazing and holistic management. And his dad's very conventional. You know, he's 70-something years old. And I ask him, you know, why are you putting fertilizer out? Why are you haying this pasture? And he's like, well, that's just because that's what you do. And so we have lots of really fun debates and I've enjoyed that quite a bit. But I agree with you. Some of the things that I say to my husband or his family, you know, they think, oh, that's because that's how that is. And so I have the same discussions. I feel you.
0: Hey, have you been over to shop Wild Rose Farmer lately? There are so many new great t-shirts, tank tops, stickers, and more. There's even official Rural Woman podcast gear now, including great t-shirts and hats. Feel good knowing when you're shopping on Shop Wild Rose Farmer, you directly support the Rural Woman podcast. And don't forget, members of the Wild Rose Farmer community save 20% off their first purchase. So head on over to wildrosefarmer.com for all of the details. And happy shopping, y'all. What do you think some of the misconceptions that you face are as a grass-fed meat operation?
1: I think the hardest part is just that consumers have never been to a livestock farm. And so I think it's not even that they have misconceptions. I think that they just don't have any conception. They don't really have any idea of what it's like. And I think what they see a lot in media, maybe even in movies, are feedlots. And so when it comes to beef production, a lot of rhetoric that I have to push back against, and this is even for conventional meat, this is not just for grass-finished meat, is that cattle spend their entire life in a feedlot. and that's an absurd notion to most people have livestock because you simply couldn't keep all of the cattle we have in the US in a feedlot. You know, just by sheer physics, the size of these animals, their nutritional requirements, the manure output. And so what a lot of what I tell people is that when it comes to welfare, you have to realize that beef, chicken, and pork are three entirely different production systems. And so in beef, cow-calf operations are really where most of production happens. And a cow-calf operation is an independently owned, often family farm that has tons of pasture where cows are kept. And these cows are bred, and they raise calves, and then the calves are you know, sold to the feedlot. And it's really only about five months or so that that animal is at the feedlot. And for a lot of people, that kind of the light bulb goes on where they think, oh, you know, it's actually not that bad. And I've had discussions with people at animal welfare groups Like ASPCA who agree. They're saying, yeah, you know, when it comes to animal welfare, most cows are out on grass, they're on pasture, they're in their natural environment, they're in family groups. We'll have we've got cows in our cow herd with, you know, four generations of daughters with them. And they tend to hang out together. And that's something that's really great to see. And I kind of contrast that with the main ways we raise pork and chicken where they're confined in confinement houses, it's a much more industrialized process. And I just try and point out to people, you can't conflate meat of all kinds. You have to realize that beef, pork and chicken are all very, very different systems and you need to dig into that a little bit. Absolutely.
0: And I think as a uninformed consumer, there are definitely ways to find out information through the internet but I always encourage people to ask actual farmers versus Googling where their meat comes from. Because (laughs) as you know, there are definitely things that will pop up that maybe are not completely accurate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, oftentimes. Yeah. So
0: Lauren, you are a very busy person. You are not only a law professor, you're a food journalist and you're a farmer. So what does your typical day look like for you?
1: There isn't a typical day. Well, maybe there is. I don't know. It kind of depends on the time. It depends on how many classes I'm teaching. And something that's really helped me out is that a lot of the classes I teach have been moved to online classes. And so that frees up my time a little bit. I teach agricultural law and I write about agriculture. So those two things overlap quite a bit. And what I'm writing about as a journalist is often really relevant to what I'm teaching in my classes or, you know, what students have questions about. So I kind of consider those one in the same in terms of a job. And the nice thing about being self-employed is that I kind of set my own schedule my own hours. And so I can do random farm projects in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day, because I don't really have a set nine to five. I don't have to be in an office somewhere, which is really great. The flexibility is huge, but then I work a lot of weekends. You know, I'd say I do something work almost every single day, but I think that's just because I enjoy it so much. I feel so fortunate that i get to not only farm but that my off farm job is directly relevant not only to agriculture but to promoting the things i'm passionate about in agriculture teaching people about agriculture i think when i say ag law to a lot of people they have no idea what i'm talking about they go oh you mean like cattle wrestling stealing cows and like no you know if you think about a farm business the amount of legal issues that you can encounter just on one single farm is through the roof you know and i think farmers need lawyers that have an understanding of the unique aspects of a farm business. Yes, it is a business, but it's not really comparable to running a restaurant or to running some kind of other business. It's really unique. And so, you know, I sleep plenty. I get 8 hours of sleep at night and I somehow still do a lot of these things, but I think it's because they all overlap with what I'm directly passionate about.
0: I think that's great that you can have all of these different aspects of your job basically relate back to farming. I think that's so cool and it's cool for people to know that there are different occupations outside of being on the farm, working on the farm that have to do with agriculture that have a big, broad spectrum. So that's very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've also been working on a project with Diana Rogers on her project, her upcoming documentary and book, uh, Sacred Cow. Can you tell the listeners who Diana Rogers is, first of all, and what the project is all about?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Diana Rogers, and I met Diana Rogers through the Stolen Goat Escapade. And so that's something Silver Lining I'm really thankful for because Diana has done a lot of incredible work. She's a registered dietitian. Most of you probably know her as Sustainable Dish. She does a podcast and posts a lot of Instagram and has a lot of blogs. But what she's working on now is Sacred Cow and it's making the environmental, nutritional, and ethical case for better meat. You know, a lot of what we're hearing from different outlets is that we need less meat, or some people are even saying, you know, we need to get rid of livestock. We need to completely just end animal agriculture. And so in the project, what Diana is trying to do is show people that nutritionally, we need, you know, the overwhelming majority of the population needs animal protein. And then the environmental piece, which is what I'm super fascinated in, you know, I don't have a nutritional background, but the environmental piece is something I've seen happen on our farms and other farms is how livestock can revitalize an ecosystem. And livestock are a really important part of the cycle that makes an ecosystem healthy. And I think a lot of people assume that livestock are destructive, that they degrade the soil that they take from the environment. And they certainly can be. You, know, you have too many cows on a pasture, if they're not being managed the right way, yeah, they can cause some environmental harm. But when they're managed properly, they can increase biodiversity, they can increase organic matter in the soil, forage diversity, they can create habitat for wildlife. There's really incredible, incredible things you can do with ruminants. You can combat invasive species, particularly with goats. I've grazed my goats on poison hemlock and got rid of poison hemlock on my farm using goats instead of using herbicide. So the ethical piece too, we get to the whole conversation about, is it ethical? Is it right? Is it moral to raise an animal to kill it for food? And that's something that in some of the writing I've done, I've explored quite a bit. You know, how can you raise an animal and then kill it and eat it for food? When I first started raising livestock, I was kind of curious how I would react. You know, it's one thing to talk the talk, but then to actually have butcher day come and to drive these animals to the butcher and drop them off knowing what's going to happen. You know, I wasn't quite sure how I would react to that. And I actually handled it a lot better than I thought. It As you know, it's a lot of different emotions. You're proud that you got an animal to butcher weight. You're proud that you kept it healthy. You're a little sad. You know, you're know you not going to see this animal anymore. It's a lot of things all wrapped into one. And so this documentary and projecting on all that and trying to explain to consumers that the answer isn't no meat. The answer is better meat. Let's help ranchers manage their livestock better. Let's have more holistic management. Let's try and promote more grass-finished beef maybe for some people. And even traditional beef production. You know, There's still... Opportunities to make the system better, as opposed to just as I tell people, throwing the bovine out with the bathwater. Right.
0: This documentary and project sounds incredible. When can we expect it out?
1: It's coming out next year. Diana's still doing a little bit of filming. She's in Mexico, actually, right now with some ranchers in the Chihuahuan Desert who are regenerating using regenerative agriculture principles. I think one million acres. Wow. Quote me, but I think it is close to one million acres. It's going to come out next year. And so in the meantime, what I'm helping Diana with is writing articles, blog content, and just exploring these concepts of better meat leading up to the film and the book launch.
0: Very cool. And I'm going to put all this information in the show notes so the listeners can find it and go check it out and support you and Diana in, this, in this journey. So very cool. So my final question for you, Lauren, is what is the most rewarding part for you of being a farmer?
1: Yeah, and I could have probably spent the whole 45 minutes talking about this, as I'm sure most of your guests could probably do. I think just comparing my life pre-farm and post-farm, I think the most rewarding thing, and this isn't some deep emotional philosophical thing, is just how much healthier I am. I think mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, I am such a healthier person because... I'm outside, I'm moving around, I'm more connected with nature, and that's something that a lot of people might find kind of cheesy, like, oh, I'm connected with nature, but that's really important, and I think, you know, I used to live in San Francisco, I used to live in big cities, I've lived in England for a while, and I largely didn't conception of what was happening in nature season to season, because you're just in a city environment, and I have a newfound appreciation for things like changing of seasons, and for the unique aspects of each season. And, you know, there's a lot of issues we're hearing in the news about anxiety and depression. And I can't help but feel like I'm not really suffering from those things because I'm outside. I'm more in tune with nature. I have more of a natural rhythm to my life. And it's just the lifestyle, you know, getting to live on a farm. It's so beautiful. And when I go visit other people, you know, I see their apartments or houses. And, you know, if that's what makes them happy, you have to find the living arrangement that makes you happy. But I don't think I could ever ever live in a suburb again. I think it would be very, very hard for me to do that. So when there's hard days farming or good days, what I'm always really thankful for is just the lifestyle that I'm able to live now. And my husband and I are thinking about starting a family. And when I think about raising a kid in this environment and the experiences they're going to have and just the childhood that they're going to get to have, you know, that's something I'm incredibly thankful for. That is a great answer.
0: Good job. You thought of a good one. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you.
1: laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried.
0: <laughs> Lauren, it's been so great chatting with you. I know I have learned a lot from it. I'm sure my listeners are going to take a lot away from this episode. If my listeners would like to connect with you online after the show, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at White Hoof Acres, just the color White Hoof Acres. And I post quite a bit of stuff on them. I'm always happy to answer questions and chat with people. So don't hesitate.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman podcast. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can stay connected with me on Instagram at Farmer. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.